This is an Odyssey original. This is KX in depth. I'm Rob Barch. I'm Charles Feldman, a scare in the air, an off duty Alaska Airlines pilot accused of trying to shut off a jet's engines in mid flight. We go in depth into the mental health of airline pilots. Hollywood looking to end the actor's strike. Can it work before the holidays? Also, we're going to make you Ege Bowl today. Ege Bowl. Ege Bowl? Yeah. If you don't know what we mean by that, we'll Uh tell you because all the youngsters are doing it. By the way, uh, and we mentioned this on Friday, and we'll talk more about it on this coming Friday. This is the last week for KNX in depth uh, before we go the way of the woolly mammoth. Uh, <laughs> so, so there you have it. Uh, but we begin with the uh, mental health of airline pilots following a disturbing incident on a Horizon Airlines flight headed from Washington State to San Francisco. Here's the uh, audio communication, by the way, from that flight. The pilot telling Portland Air Traffic Control the situation was finally under control. Okay, I'll just uh, give you a heads up. We've got the uh, guy that tried to shut the engines down uh, out of the cockpit, and he uh, doesn't sound like he's causing any issue in the back right now. I think he's the dude. Okay, so Dan Bob is a former airline pilot, current aviation history expert at UNLV, also with us is Michael uh, Drycorn, who is the principal partner in the aviation security firm ASD Experts. He used to work for the FAA. Uh, Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Thanks for having us. Dan, let me start with you as a former airline pilot. I know that pilots have to uh, periodically, uh, in order to keep flying, get physical exams. What about mental exams? So, yes, uh, the physical exam uh, takes place every six months. If you're over 40, you actually have to take an EKG test, a stress test. Uh, The psychological exam is pretty much voluntary. Um, It's not mandatory, although it is highly recommended if you're suffering any type of mental disorder, any mental stress. And, uh, Michael, uh, do you think that enough is being done to screen out uh, pilots that might have uh, issues, uh, and not just at one time, but uh, over the course of their careers? Because I recall another example of a pilot uh, carrying out a a murder-suicide, crashing a plane deliberately into the ocean. So this kind of thing happens. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, when it does happen, uh, they, they take a lot of people with them. Um, and we just go back to 2015 when uh, the uh, the co-pilot of the German Wings aircraft between Barcelona and Dusseldorf took a, an, a, an A320 and put it into the French Alps, killing all aboard. Um, we, we, we do have uh, a, a very complex issue. Uh, we've got a, a growing shortage of pilots in our industry. Uh, we have, um, you know, a growing demand for air travel. And, and we have a lot of stress in our society um, that, you know, that, that need to, needs to be understood. Uh, so the, the short answer is, is we, we need to take some of the discretion, in my opinion, uh, on the psychological exams uh, out of it and put it more of a mandatory. Because um, we, we really don't want these types of things ever occurring. Yeah, I mean, Dan, uh, as we mentioned, the accused here was an off-duty pilot Uh, perhaps heading to a destination where he would be one of the two on-duty pilots. 
And that right. and that makes it even scarier because instead of having two other people in the cockpit, the actual captain and co-pilot who subdued him, he might have ended up on a flight where he was one of the two people in the cockpit. That is truly frightening. Absolutely. And I, I wholeheartedly agree with Michael's point that we really need to make this mandatory because we don't know. Uh, we don't know if a pilot is suffering from a relationship problem, financial distress. It can be any number of factors. And when all of these factors start to kind of compile, the stress can be nearly unbearable. I mean, it's already stressful enough trying to get passengers safely from point A to point B. But when you add these other life factors to it, then it can become an even greater problem. Dan, very quickly, is there something physiological here that uh, someone who is having an issue who otherwise would not act on it, but something about being that high up in the air, in the recirculated air of a cabin? I mean, I'm not a scientist. I don't know. Is there something about that that could make that kind of person snap and then do something they wouldn't normally do? It, it, it might. I, I would think that would be a minor part of the problem. What is really the major part is the unknown. You know, is the pilot suffering from some sort of financial distress? Are they having relationship problems? Uh, are, are they suffering from some sort of illness? I think those are the major factors that need to be examined and explored. And as Michael said, make it part of the mandatory physical that every pilot has to undergo. I mean, the real problem, and this is addressed to both of you, one of the real problems is that passengers have been left to feel very confident in the post-9-11 world because of TSA and all the screening. And yet it seems like there's this major loophole in the front of the plane. Wow. Well, so, yeah, so sometimes we put fixes in place. Um, and, and not recognize the inherent risk in doing so, like the German wings. In, in response to the 9-11, they hardened the cockpit so nobody could break in. When the pilot left um, the cockpit and left a co-pilot in there, the co-pilot decided to commit suicide with all bo- people on board. So sometimes we do, and, and so the pilot couldn't get back in. Nobody could get back in. Um, we really need to think through the totality of the aviation safety system and, and understand all the stresses, the psychological, the ones that you can't see. And, and, but we really need to anticipate them and think, how can we prevent this? All right, Dan Bubb, uh, former airline pilot, current aviation history expert at UNLV, also Michael Drycorn there, principal partner of the aviation security firm uh, ASD Experts, used to work for the FAA. Right now, though, SEG after in the Hollywood studios. We'll talk again tomorrow to try to end the strike that's now over 100 days old. Gene Mattis is the senior media reporter for Variety. Gene, thanks for being with us. Happy to do it. So any indication that the negotiations that I guess are going to continue uh, later this week uh, are any closer to bearing fruit? Uh, it's really hard to tell. I mean, the they broke off uh, two weeks ago and the, and the studios were saying we're just too far apart. And the studios reached out again on Saturday and said, all right, let's try this again. But it's sort of anybody's guess whether it'll be any more productive this time. A sack after its convention was this weekend. I was in attendance because I'm a, a delegate and uh, it's supposed to go for, you know, Saturday, Sunday. There are some sessions on Monday, uh, but there we were Saturday afternoon. We took a break and it, it kept taking them longer and longer to come back. We kept getting notes. So we'll be back 
uh, you know, give us 2 o'clock. We'll be back at 2.10. Finally, when they came back, uh, Fran Drescher, the president of SAG-AFTRA, was on the screen, and uh, she was explaining what had happened, that the AMPTP had reached out and wanted to go back to the bargaining table. Now, she and uh, Duncan Crabtree Ireland seemed to be in very high spirits about that, which led us all to feel like this might be a positive development, that maybe we were due for some positive news. Uh, Do you have a feeling that maybe the end is actually this time, finally, at long last, in sight? It could be. I mean, there there was a very similar pattern that happened with the writers uh, just before the writers were were able to to make their deal um, in September. Uh, You know, the talks broke down and there was a lot of finger pointing back and forth. And then they finally got back in the room and they solved it within three or four days. And I guess the question for both sides is, are they really ready to, you know, meet somewhere in the middle or are they still sort of too angry at each other or too sort of locked into their own positions to to get to a deal. And I think, you know, neither side is really sure uh, until we actually get into the room of, of what to, what position the other side is going to be in. So, um, you know, who's to say, but, you know, we could have a deal in the next week or two, optimistically. But are we running against a clock in terms of a settlement uh, happening by a certain point after which it's going to be pretty much impossible to have a new TV season or even new movies filling the theaters in spring or summertime? I mean, that's definitely like if you're looking for why why are the studios like pretty eager to get this over with, um, that is the reason they they are the 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 twenty three, twenty four TV season is hanging by a thread. The summer twenty four movie season is in very, very serious trouble, and they very much need to get a deal as soon as they can get it so that they they can save those or salvage some portion of those those things. So, um, yeah, I mean, definitely the timing is important. They want it, you know, 10 days would be nice. Um, But, you know, if if they can't get it in 10 days, then they'll come back on the 11th day. You know, they're just going to have to keep doing it until they get a deal. Uh, The union appears to have held a very solid line throughout this entire strike, the Actors' Union. Uh, when this is settled, who do you think is going to be a little bit happier? Uh, the feeling might be that the creator side has a bit more leverage right now. Definitely from the the outcome of the Writers Guild, uh, you know, it was 99% support to, to ratify that agreement. I think everybody felt very good about where that ended up. And you'll certainly see whenever SAG gets a deal, and it, it, it will get a deal at some point, that I'm sure they will say this is a, a, a historic victory, as, as every union does when they get an agreement. And I imagine that the, the membership will generally um, be in agreement with that. Um, I think the studios sort of have a vested interest in sort of giving the union something that they can call a victory, right? And because they need the the deal ratified just as much as the union leadership needs it ratified. So I think everybody's incentives are sort of pushing in the direction of let's get an agreement that the union can say, look, we won on X, Y, and Z so everybody can get back to work. But let's say we get it done or they get it done uh, in time to start production up again. I would still imagine that there would be a real rush and, and some projects I would think would have to be now pushed off to perhaps a, another year or do they save money do they i don't know do they do a superman movie and he doesn't fly because it saves bucks i don't know i mean there's only so much production capacity that that can happen at any one moment and and a lot of that is limited by soundstage space but also just by the the size of the crew base and you know people have been suffering for the last six nine ten months something like that that, that people have been out of work uh, some people have left the industry. So, you know, getting back up and running is going to require 
you know, getting all those people back to work and getting some people who've left the industry to come back. Um, so, you know, they, they can only make as, as much stuff as they can make. And it's not going to be like twice as fast or anything like that, the, 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 the rate that they were doing it before. All right. Thank you so much, Gene Mattis, senior media reporter for Variety. Later in the show, we're going to make you LOL over how Gen Z is trying to change our online slang. I get the feeling this is going to be another one of those you kids get off my lawn segments. You think? I have a feeling, yeah. But, you know, you're not supposed to have lawns in California now because of That's you know, right. water conditions. So, so you're, we have to come up with another metaphor. You kids get off my cement paving stones. There you go. Right now, though, the auto worker strike showing no signs of ending soon, which has industry analysts wondering if there is an end game from the union. Paul Eisenstein is editor of News, which covers the automotive world. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. So with the union now uh, doing a strike against uh, uh, Solantis plan that brings in a lot of money for the company, uh, is this a, a good game plan? Is this game plan working for the UAW? And, and if not, what are they doing wrong? Well, it depends on which side you want to take on this. Uh, I guess you could argue that it's working in the sense that the UAW continues to win additional concessions for the manufacturers. Uh, a week ago, GM said, that's it. We're done. We have nothing else to give you. A few days later, they raised their uh, wages offer by about a dollar, about a dollar an hour. So uh, it does seem the union is saying, OK, we're going to keep waiting until you get pretty darn close to what we asked for in the first place. Now. Here's the downside. They're in week six. That's a long time to keep workers out on the line. And I'm talking the picket line here. And the question is, how much longer are workers willing to do so, especially with cold weather moving into the Midwest, where a lot of the plants are striking are located? The uh, new head of the union uh, is considered a bit of a firebrand, right? And, and some people are are very happy with him. Some people, I think, within the union itself, somewhat critical of him. And there's a concern, is there not, that perhaps he's been promising his rank and file more than he can really deliver in terms of pay increases anyway. Well, I think across the board, what Sean Fain, the new union leader, has asked for is a lot. He calls it historic. And I think uh, Anybody, including those negotiators over at uh, GM, Ford, and Stellantis, would tell you that this is just uh, an amazing, amazing list of demands. They laid out 700 demands uh, in the uh, weeks leading up to the deadline on September 14th. Uh, on the other hand, uh, his argument is, you know, we gave up all these concessions for more than a decade. You recall they gave up cost of living allowances. For a while, they gave up pay raises and the like. And what his argument is, we're just really getting back on the trend line of where we would have been if we hadn't made all those concessions. So it really is a question of which side you want to look, look at them from. You know, we've had a lot of strikes this summer. This was the uh, labor, uh, long, hot labor summer, and it looks like labor has has won some yardage back here. And I'm wondering if UAW gets close to what they want and they claim a historic victory here and the actors uh, get a victory and the writers have gotten their victory. Uh, is this a bigger moment for labor in this country where labor now has a lot of new power. And will that power hold in the future? It's an interesting question. It's an important one. We have seen 
strike after strike and uh, near strike after near strike. Look at UPS. They got a huge increase. United Pilots did and so on. I mean, across the country, we have seen a lot of labor action this year. A few a few of the cases didn't work out as well as the individual unions wanted. And we do have strikes. The UAW represents non-auto workers as well, as you may be aware. So they have casino workers in Detroit on strike. They have uh, uh, union workers from the Blue Cross Blue Shield on strike. And all across the country, we're seeing more labor action than we probably have at any time since Ronald Reagan cracked the uh, the air traffic controller union back in the 1980s. Uh, this is a very important period. And s polls show that no matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, the American public appears to support labor. They may not support organized unions, but they support labor in general. And the huge money that shareholders have made and the huge wages and benefits that are being given to executives, Mary Barra, GM getting $28 million last year, seems to be contributing to this overall sense of workers deserve more. Paul Eisenstein, thanks for joining us, editor of Headlight.News, which covers the automotive world. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. If you follow hurricanes on the news, you may have noticed recently that they uh, seem to get stronger quicklier. More quickly. Quicklier. 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 Yeah. I just I pulled that one right out of the um, air. Quicklier, huh? Yeah. One day as towards... <laughs> oh. <laughs> I hit my head when I came in the studio. Yes, you know what that is? That's a, a, a comment on the educational <laughs> system. <laughs> yeah, a future segment on KX yes. in depth. Right, okay. uh, one day a storm is a category <laughs> one, then the next it's suddenly a category three or even a category four. Quicklier. Huh? Quicklier. A new, stu a new study <laughs> finds hurricanes in the Atlantic are now twice as likely or likelier. <laughs> As before, we've gone down that road too late to turn back uh, as before to go from minor to powerful. Andre Gardner is a climate scientist at Rowan University in New Jersey and the author of the study. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, happy to be here. OK, so uh, let's talk about uh, what the study has found in terms of uh, hurricanes and why they are getting apparently stronger, as Rob put it, quickly. Yeah, so um, one of the, you know, some of the things that I looked at with this project were overall, how are hurricane intensities changing in the Atlantic? Um, and, you know, that can include broad changes as well as more extreme changes. And I did find, you know, some increases on average in the fastest intensification rates of hurricanes in the Atlantic. Um, for example, um, storms tended to increase by um more than 28% in the modern era. So that's post 2001 compared to a historical era, which is the 1970s and 80s. Um, the extremes tended to increase even more over that time. So for example, I found that the number of times that hurricanes intensify from a fairly weak storm, like a category one hurricane or weaker into a major hurricane. So that's category three or greater within 24 hours has more than doubled in the modern time compared to the historical time. Um, and, you know, as far as what are what's really driving those changes, you know, I didn't really get a chance to narrow down exactly what's driving that. But one of the motivations for me in this research was knowing that our ocean surface temperatures have increased over that time and that that's a key fuel source for these hurricanes. 
wanting to see if there were also changes in the rates at which hurricanes strengthen. So this is real trend. This is not something that, say, uh, a climate change denier is going to look at and say, uh, well, you know, we have good years and bad years with storms. This is a real trend that you can you can put on a graph and and show us, right? Yeah. And, you know, there there certainly is variability from any year to another in the Atlantic Basin. Um, but, yeah, these trends that I found, you know, as far as increases in the average fastest rate, rates at which hurricanes strengthen or how often storms go from a category one into a major hurricane, those were all significantly uh, different in the modern time period compared to the historical time period. Do you think that uh, municipalities, especially ones prone to hurricanes in this country are prepared for this? You know, I think that's something that maybe this research highlights is that this is definitely something that our coastal communities should be thinking about. Um, Hurricanes, especially hurricanes that strengthen really quickly, are often difficult to forecast. They're also something that's difficult to prepare for, right? You know, if a hurricane is coming towards your coastal community and suddenly strengthens from category one into category four, the measures that need to be taken and the preparation that needs to go into place is very different. Um, So I think one thing that this work is showing is that we have already seen measurable increases in the rates at which hurricanes are strengthening. And so we do need to be thinking about maybe how to improve those coastal emergency plans, thinking about maybe how we can get those plans set up in a way that they can adapt more readily to changes in a hurricane intensity and that kind of thing. The uh, Do the trend lines also show uh, not only storms getting stronger faster, but also more storms happening and unseasonal storms? So that um, is not really something that I've looked at in this work. Um, also, as far as, you know, frequency of hurricanes, that's actually something that's very much still uh, a research question within the community. A lot of um, a lot of studies actually show a little bit of a decrease in the total numbers of storms, but it is often um, identified that even if we have slightly fewer overall numbers, a lot of those storms or the storms that become exceptionally strong are are overall increasing in number. Is there a theoretical limit to how strong a hurricane can get? That's a good question. Um, I honestly don't know that off the top of my head. Um, But, you know, as we continue to increase, you know, our ocean waters and the temperature of those surface waters in our oceans, um, certainly where those hurricanes get a lot of their fuel, then that does change, you know, how intense a hurricane can become. Andra Garner, a climate scientist at Rowan University in New Jersey, the author of the study showing that uh, storms are getting stronger, faster, or more quicklier. We all like to uh, keep things short in our emails and text messages. That's why we sometimes write LOL or uh, LMAO when something strikes us as being, you know, funny. Because we want to be shortened to the point. Don't and, waste time. And because we're lazy. Uh, exactly. Uh, there's also each bowl. It's uh, spelled I-J-B-O-L. Isn't now, that something you eat? Each bowl. It does sound like something you would eat. Yeah, it sounds like yeah. something you would order in a restaurant. Like some kind of noodles. Yeah. 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 Each yeah. bowl. I'll yeah. have the each bowl. With a, with a Diet Coke. Right. And yeah. some garlic bread. Yeah. Uh, if you're older, you may not know what that means, like Charles 
obviously, and, and, and me. The yeah. younger people do, and many are using it here to explain why each bowl caught on is Mandy Hoskinson, president of the Social Media Club of Los Angeles, owner of the marketing agency Zole. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, happy to be here as always. So these all stand for something. Uh, each bowl, what does that stand for? And why are, why are the, the, the noisy kids on my lawn using it? <laughs> so it stands for I just burst out laughing. And if the noisy kids are the kids that are really into Korean pop <laughs> near you, then those are probably <laughs> the ones who are using it the most. But but why the need to do it? Is it just to be different that every generation kind of wants to have its own, what they think of as a kind of a secret lexicon? Yeah, it's it's really niche. And it, it seems to have started within the K-pop community. So it's about not only being niche, but being hyper niche within your own interest. Other people kind of heard about it. So, you know, the New York Times reported on this. Reader's Digest reported on this. I think they're sort of blowing it out of proportion, but it is one of those sort of niche words that uh, people caught on to and they want to ride that secret communities language. Is there an acronym to use for blowing it out of proportion? <laughs> I don't know it if it exists. You probably make it up. So, all right. So if, an, if a decrepit person who can barely hold their phone up <laughs> because they are so weak and old and have no more muscle mass, and they can barely take their skinny, scrawny, bone-like fingers and you tap people onto... To, you just want people to feel sorry for you. <laughs> oh, you thought I was talking about me. I oh. thought you were talking about oh, you. Oh, gosh. I, you weren't? Gosh, Charles. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Uh, if 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 someone who was like that description I just gave used each bowl in a conversation, would that person, uh, uh, not me, a friend of mine, uh, be laughed at? <laughs> I think they would just confuse the person they're talking to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, do you ever use it? Would you use it? I so I just got home from Japan and the only place I saw it was in sort of Korean pop context. I've seen it a couple of other places. I see it floating around on TikTok, but usually it's about people being confused about it being used. I think it's that new. And I think it's one of those moments where once you've heard of it, it's over. Like, I think now that it's getting noticed by people, they're probably going to find something new to say. Now, I'm thinking back the first time I saw LOL, and I know it was probably already in use before I saw it the first time, but I was using AOL Instant Messenger and somebody did LOL and somebody had to explain to me, what does that mean? And then and then I got it. And then I got a few of the rest of them that they kind of followed on. Is there a history of these and how old these are? Yes. <laughs> so because I knew we were going to chat about this, I actually checked Google Trends, which is one of the easiest ways to check it, which is trends.google.com. And you can see the earliest moments that something is being used. So I, I checked each bowl and it really started in April of this year. So it's pretty fresh. Um, LOL started in the 80s. So LOL has been around for quite some time. Um, if you really want to get nerdy, you can check trends. You can check um, as well, like Know Your Meme has done a really good job of tracking the history of this. And there are actual internet historians who have great, great resources too. So for those of us who still use LOL, should we hold our ground and insist on, on using it? Or do we cave and go over to the IJBOL side? 
I think you do what your community does. I think just keep sticking with uh, what people around you like to use. And unless you want to get real trendy and real niche, um, just do what what but, matters to you. But makes my, sense to my you. community is highly illiterate. So, <laughs> so, so, so I, what, what does that leave me with? <laughs> you know, I still like the ha ha. I know that you know, it's, uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. old fashioned. Yeah, no, no. But, but what about like things like the emojis, like smiley? Is that yeah. not good? Or? I was going to ask that because I, yeah. I was kind of surprised that we have a new uh, thing here, each bowl, because I thought that everything was going over to emojis. You know, I don't know if you've heard about the drama of okay or using periods or using a thumbs up. Oh, yeah. But thumbs using up, just, right. yeah. You're not supposed yeah, to use like thumbs kind of up, passive right? passive aggressive. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. I'm a huge fan of emoji. Um, you know, there's the reacts too, right? So you can ha-ha someone's message now. You don't even need to write it anymore. Um, but I'll warn you, the thumbs up to someone's message mm. reads just as passive aggressive as but, putting a thumbs up emoji. You know, and, and, I th- and I think we've talked about this before on the show, but the, and I don't get it. The thing about the thumbs up, why it's such a bad thing. I can see if it was a different finger, but <laughs> <laughs> but for a thumbs up, I, how did that come about? Does anybody know? So uh, I'll just say like anecdotally, it just feels like someone's giving you a sarcastic thumbs up in person. Like if if you said something to someone and they just gave you a thumbs up, they'd kind of feel like a teenager. Huh. And okay. of course, the weird thing about emojis, you have to be careful if you're not an expert in using them. You have to be very mm-hmm. careful because someone could assume that you were making a pass at them. <laughs> and there's actually yet another internet resource for you. It's yeah. called Emojipedia. Right. And not only do they have the the words, so if perhaps you know someone who's using a screen reader, say they're using accessibility technology, it will actually read the, the what it's called out loud. And if, for example, your text breaks, like you're sending it to an Android, it will actually write what your emoji is called. And if you don't know what that is, um, it could actually look very odd. But Emojipedia does a good job of doing reporting on what people associate it with. Because, yeah, it can mean very different things. But, but you know, in, in the in the ancient times, Robert remembered this, when, <laughs> when, when cavemen used to put pictures on the wall... There was great confusion, I'm sure, because one caveman would look and go, I don't know, is that a buffalo or is that a horse or is that a badly drawn rabbit? Buffalo. Yeah. And that's why they invented, I don't know, language. So wouldn't all of this confusion not be the case if people actually used language? We really haven't changed much, have we? I think I think we're actually infusing lots of meaning into images now. So yeah. I think we're it's it's creating efficiencies just like that acronym. Um and communities are always going to infuse their own meaning into their symbolism and we just have to navigate that sort of confusing shared symbolism and do our best. All right, Mandy Hoskinson, president of the Social Media Club of Los Angeles, owner of a marketing agency called Zole talking about Eejbull and we certainly hope we made you Eejbull. Yeah, but, you know, cave, yeah. cave people used yeah. to write with pictures. Yeah. Right, and put their handprints on the And put thing. their hand... We yeah. do much the same. Yes. You know, but... With electronic devices. With electronic devices. We have not progressed from cave paintings. Well, it's hard to get a, a boulder to move just because it <laughs> sees your face. It's really hard to do that. It's a hard trick. That's going to do it for GNX In-Depth today. Thanks so much. Join us tomorrow at 1 p.m.